Coming up today on the Lead to Succeed podcast. We uh, had a deeply rooted philosophy from the beginning that, uh, that companies who invested in their people, that put their people first, those companies would ultimately attract and retain the best talent. They would, in turn, produce the best products and services for their customers and have the happiest customers. Do you want to learn the tricks that top leaders use to get the most out of themselves and their teams? Well, Naftali Hoff is here to help lead to succeed. Picks the brains of top leaders to learn about their challenges, insights, and best practices. Here's Naftali. Hello, Lead to Succeed Nation. It's Naftali Hoff, and welcome to Lead to Succeed episode 104. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Matt Blumberg. Matt is the founder and CEO of Bolster, a new talent marketplace for on-demand executives and board members launched in 2020. Matt was previously chairman and CEO of ReturnPath, the market leader in email optimization. Under Matt's leadership, ReturnPath won numerous employer of choice awards, including number two on Fortune Magazine's best companies to work for list. Matt is founder and chairman of Path Forward, a nonprofit whose mission is to empower people to restart their careers after time spent focused on caregiving. He's also the author of Startup CEO, a field guide to scaling up your business, and Startup CXO, a field guide to scaling your company's critical teams. Matt, so glad to have you on the show today. Thanks, Naftali. This is lucky number 104, right? Yes, absolutely. And uh, a a very auspicious time as well as we're getting ready for the high holidays over here. So I'm super excited to have this conversation. By the way, when I see an introduction like this, I almost don't know where to start because part of me wants to talk about your business experience. Part of me wants to talk about the nonprofit. So why don't we just sort of take a step back and give you the opportunity to tell us your story? You know, how did you get here? Um, You don't have to go all the way back, but, you know, to give us a sense of how you kind of carved out this path, especially as we're going to touch on later, there's so many different uh, points along this journey. So I'm really curious about it. Yeah. Uh, so we'll we'll stick with the uh, we'll stick with the career, the arc of the career, uh, and, and not go too far back. Um, my first job out of college was uh, management consulting. A wonderful first job if you're interested in a, you know in business career and don't know what you want to do. I always I always say that I should have been willing to pay the firm. Uh, mm when the firm paid me because it was just it was a it was a great education uh i then spent a couple of years in venture capital uh as an associate uh which was really interesting to learn the um you know sort of the ins and outs of of deals particularly around uh software startups uh and you know this was sort of 1994 1995 so it was the very very early uh internet startups as well yeah and um that was a pretty clean lead to the thing that I did after that, which was I, I, after having been a consultant and an investor, uh, I was really much more interested in being an operator and being uh, the one inside the company making things happen as opposed to the one outside the company, either advising uh, or funding. Uh, so I went to work at a, uh, a small, um, small cap public company called Moviephone. Uh, for, for New Yorkers who are listening to this, they may remember the old 777 film uh, interactive telephone service, uh, which went back to the late eighties. Uh, and, uh, so it was a pre-internet business, but it was very, uh, much, uh, in line with the way the internet works. It was ad supported. 
Uh, it was interactive. It had an e-commerce component to it. It was just it just predated the internet, uh, and it was done through a touchtone phone. Um, and I was uh, I was at Movie Phone on the executive team uh, for five years, uh, ninety five, six, seven, eight, nine, kind of internet 1.0, uh, and was really very fortunate uh, to sort of be in the right place at the right time. And you know, woke up one day at age I don't know twenty five or something, um, building and running a top. 50 internet property at the at the beginning of the commercial internet. So uh, I I learned uh, you know sort of business building inside of another company um, in those years. And after we sold uh, Movie Phone to AOL in 1999, um, I took a few months to figure out what I wanted to do. But then I started uh, Return Path, which was my first company that I started. Uh, I ran that and uh, scaled that up with a wonderful team and a great uh, group of venture investors for almost 20 years. Uh, we got to about 500 employees worldwide um, and about 100 million in revenue. Uh, we sold the company in 2019. Along the way, we started Path Forward, uh, the nonprofit you mentioned, uh, which was kind of a side project inside of Return Path, and then we spun it out into a nonprofit. Uh, and uh, then in 2020, a group of my uh, friends and colleagues and I from Return Path started Bolster. Uh, so depending on how you count it, it's either my second company or my third company. Um, and each one has, each step has kind of led to the next step. Interesting. But they're all, they, they all seem to be in somewhat different areas, if I, if I understood it correctly. They I'm are particular- the, the, movie, the movie business, the email business, and the people business. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm really interested on the connection to the people side of it. Because I do a lot of work with nonprofits as well. I'm actually a former uh, educator and school leader. So most of my career pre-coaching um, was in the nonprofit space. And I still spend a lot of my time with nonprofits, nonprofit leadership, whatnot. And so I'm curious to know how the email optimization industry helped you or was uh, kind of like the... the um, the birthing space, if you will, for this nonprofit, specifically with an eye towards caregivers? How did that happen? Um, it's, a, it's an interesting question. And I, I would say there, um, there are sort of two through lines or consistent themes in my career. Um, one is about um, sort of disruptive business models. Um, but the other is really about people and human capital and leadership. And um, in a lot of ways, um, you know, I, I always joke that uh, Return Path could have been um, anything. It could have been a roofer, a roofing company. It could have been, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it could have been an insurance company um, or it could have been an email company. I had lots of ideas for disruptive businesses to start. But one of the driving uh, forces for me wanting to become an entrepreneur and start a business um, was uh, wanting to create a different kind of workplace and a different kind of experience for employees. And the places that I had worked in the early 90s, uh, again, consulting, investing, and then um, you know, in this interactive services company uh, before the internet, um, were all, uh, I mean, they were all wonderful, uh, wonderful parts of my career. Uh, they all had some really admirable things about them. And I learned a lot of positive things from them, but I also learned a lot of kind of head scratching things or, or more negative things from the employee experiences. And it just kept striking me over and over again that uh, the way in which companies managed their employees <clears throat> was not changing to keep pace with uh, the type of companies 
uh, that were being formed. Uh, so all of these businesses, you know, investing, consulting, technology, they're all knowledge economy businesses. You're hiring smart, motivated uh, people to work in them. And at the time in the 90s, a lot of these businesses were managing their employees with a great deal of control um, and uh, 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 a lack of trust and things that I, I just I felt like, wow, you know, these businesses are not getting the best out of their people. Uh, because they're not treating their people well. So, uh, you know, I joke that Return Path could have been anything because the thing that I really wanted to start was a great place to work. Uh, and it happened to take the form of, uh, a, of an email services company for 20 years. It now takes the form of a people-oriented business, which is probably a little more logical. Um, but the 20 years of scaling Return Path really, um, in a lot of ways, was a learning lab for me and for my leadership team um, about people and about how to get the best out of people. Um, that um, orientation, this is a, that was a long wind up to the pitch here, um, but that orientation led us to create a program inside of Return Path that was a return to work program for moms who had taken a career break. So our, our CTO at the time was the one that came up with the idea along with our head of HR. They had been doing some work on unconscious bias and on uh, building a more diverse engineering team, which is quite challenging. Um, and they came up with this idea of a return to work program. We ran a few iterations of it internally just for us at Return Path, and it started to catch fire. And then it started to catch fire outside the organization. So we had other companies calling us, asking us if we could help them set up a return to work program. And after we did five or six of those for other companies off the side of our HR team's desk, we sort of called a timeout and we said, hey, this is obviously a, a market need and it's really a, a wonderful thing and we should we should lean into it but we can't lean into it off the desk of the HR department of a technology company uh, so we created a standalone 501c3 called path forward uh, which is a little bit of a play on return path path forward uh, um, we uh, initially staffed it with um, uh, someone who is a senior person at return path who moved over and she's now the executive director uh, and um, uh, and it's kind of taken on a life of its own since then. Interesting. Wow. There's a lot I want to ask you, but just one technical question before we go any further. Why did you choose to form it as a 501c3 instead of, let's say, a consulting firm? That is a very good question. Uh, in some respects, uh, uh, it is a consulting firm uh, or that some of the work it does is consultative. We did have a long discussion about whether to, um, you know, whether to make it a for-profit or a non-for-profit. I would describe it as a non-for-profit that we run with many for-profit principles. Um, so we do rely on, on donations, uh, but donations make up about 15 to 20% of the firm's revenue. Um, most of it is earned income from partners. Um, so it's a nonprofit with for-profit mentality. Uh, but the reason we made that decision is we felt like the pressure we would have from uh, investors, if we were a for-profit company, to uh, you know, grow, 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 would turn us into a staffing company and not let us be as mission-driven as we really wanted to be. Um, Path Forward is trying to, uh, to do a couple of things that are very mission-driven, right? Solving the uh, you know, gender equity issues in the workplace. Um, and uh, we just felt that a, a nonprofit was gonna let us be what we wanted to be. And I think that was a good decision for us. Yeah, no, it sounds like it was. It's just, uh, it's a new way to think of it, that's for sure. And I think wanting to maintain control over what it is that you're after and not, you know, we, we 
back in the day, you talked about how business used to be. So I know uh, once upon a time, there was a, a, a very, very um, narrow focus on satisfying your shareholders and your investors and really making sure that at the end of the day, they were happy. You know, I think business has changed a lot and your story, <clears throat> maybe your mindset and your attitude and your values probably helped to spearhead some of that change. I know it's been happening on a global level as well, <clears throat> where companies are really trying to put their people first and in right. so doing, create the kind of outcomes that not only make it make retention and interior, let's call it engagement, um, elevated and, and, and continually high. But of course, it has then this great result that sort of makes its way to the market and whatnot. And so I'm just curious to know, because I know along the way in your intro, we talked about, um, or I mentioned the fact that uh, your business was a great place to work multiple times, ranked as high as number two. What did that mean to you? Um, what did that look like? And um, yeah, just just curious to hear more about that. Yeah, well, you you said the key phrase um, about uh, 60 seconds ago, which is um, which is putting people first. And we actually kind of branded our culture at Return Path a people first culture. Mm -hmm. um, and that was really at the center of um, of what we did as as an organization. We uh, had a deeply rooted philosophy from the beginning that uh, that companies who invested in their people that put their people first those companies would ultimately attract and retain the best talent they would in turn produce the best products and services for their customers and have the happiest customers and in turn would deliver results to their shareholders um, so that was we had a slide in our company uh, overview presentation that that kind of had that flow to it um, and uh, our philosophy was really this people first concept was about giving um, a lot of freedom and flexibility in exchange for high performance. Uh, and at the end of the day, uh, people, particularly knowledge workers, uh, but, but humans love uh, degrees of autonomy and creativity in their work. And they do their best work when they're allowed to flourish and when they're allowed to think for themselves. And was this, you know, and I agree with you. I'm, I'm just curious. Did I cut you off, by the way? Okay, thanks. So what I want to know is, is this something, Matt, that you kind of, quote, came up with on your own? I know you talked about your experience in the consulting firms and and maybe feeling at times that you were kind of boxed in, I'm guessing. Um, you know, sometimes you have what we call industry norms, industry standards, <clears throat> and then somebody comes along. And I'm not suggesting you're the only the only person who who, who thinks in these terms, but you know, you have people who come along, one or multiple voices that come along and disrupt, right? They disrupt industries, they disrupt mindsets, they disrupt the ways that we we think about and interact with our employees. So I'm curious to know um, where did that come from, from, from your end of it? And, and how difficult was it to make that? It sounds like your team was on board, but did you find that in any way to be like people looking at you like, what are you guys doing? Or did you feel like it was really a ripe, open space for this kind of pivot? Um, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, I I feel like a lot of the um, a lot of the ideas that we executed on um, probably came from me at the beginning. But you know, it wasn't just about me. It was about uh, it was about the leadership team that I was working with and the board that I had at the time uh, that were supportive of going down that path to bring things to life and to iterate on them. Uh, and 
you know, look, these these things, as you mentioned earlier, in a different context, um, sometimes society moves in in different directions. So, you know, in 1999, I was I wasn't the only person thinking about things like this. There was a very famous uh, 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 PowerPoint that got circulated, I think, in 2000. That was Netflix's culture deck. And so Netflix and Return Path were about the same vintage. Netflix, obviously, much bigger, more famous company. Um, and, uh, you know, that was that was um, uh, that happened as we were implementing a lot of these things uh, ourselves. So we, we were certainly not the only people that came up with this. Um, and I, I think the um, you know, the answer to your second question, uh, which was sort of how easy was it, um, is an interesting one, because you would think it in some respects it would be easy or that the resistance would have come from investors right employees our investors were actually quite supportive um and and you know as long as we were doing a good job at work they weren't micromanaging how we were running the company um a lot of the resistance uh that we had over the years and it wasn't tons but a lot of the resistance we had over the years came from kind of the management layer in the company um and and even some of the leaders in the company because uh, you know, they had grown up and been trained as managers in places that were a little more command and control and had reflexes that were developed uh, in those environments. So I remember, I'll give you one example. We, um, uh, when we started the company, um, you know, again, this is 1999, we had a, um, a fairly traditional vacation policy. It was a generous one. You know, it was three weeks plus a bunch of bonus days. Uh, and at the time, two weeks was a standard, um, but it was still a it was still a a vacation policy. And a few years in, um, I, I said, you know what, this is this is wrong. This is not consistent with the people first culture of freedom and flexibility in exchange for high performance. And if we're not counting the hours that people do work, why are we counting the hours that people don't work? So yeah. we moved to what we called an open vacation policy, which um, which again now is a little more commonplace, uh, uh, although it's still not a not a standard anywhere. And the open vacation policy was, um, you know, was essentially an unlimited vacation policy. Although you had to get your job done and you had to get it done well, so it was bounded by your ability to execute. Um, and uh, we didn't really track days and hours off, and we encouraged people to take as much time off as possible. Um, the were, they, were they tethered to an office or um, did you also we, have that kind of mindset? Yeah, I know you don't have the technology a, then as you have today. Exactly. I would say we were always, um, we always had a distributed workforce. So we always had offices in multiple places and people who worked from um, places where we didn't have an office. And our policy around working from an office, if you had an office to go to, was always a fairly flexible one. It wasn't the way things are now post-pandemic. Um, for sure, but it was it was a flexible one. Like you could work from home if you wanted to work from home or needed to work from home, um, and that was another one. Along with um, moving to open vacation, that had a lot of managers really sort of keyed up, um, and uh, uh, so we did get some resistance there. And ultimately, we got everyone over the hurdle, and we said, "Look, we, we want to, let's manage this by exception on the back end. Let's not manage it by fiat at the front end." And, you know, I think in, in we probably had this policy at, at Return Path for 15 years of open vacation. One time ever did we have to tell someone they were taking too much vacation mm-hmm. out of 500 employees. Um, I'm really we interested. Same, we, have same, yeah. we have the same policy at Bolster now. We're a small company now because we're a startup. Um, right. we, have, we don't even think about it anymore. 
if anything, we have to tell people to take vacation because they're not they're working too much. Interesting. So I'm interested in that in that manager transition, that training piece, the mindset there, <clears throat> because oftentimes, like you mentioned, Matthew, you know, people have a certain way of of developing, and um, and so they often need to be coached uh, in a different direction. You made it seem like all your people stayed with you, and they and they made that transition. Is that is that more or less a fair understanding, or did you need to? you know, cycle through some of your management level in order to get the right people back on the bus? Yeah, I would say um, the thing we got very good at over the years was hiring uh, very strong uh, people at sort of the middle level of of management, kind of manager director level, um, who had been trained elsewhere, but hadn't been set in their, weren't totally set in their ways. They hadn't been doing what they'd been doing for 20 or 30 years. And we were able to uh, uh, to sort of put our our stamp on them as a manager and a leader. We invested extensively in management, leadership training, and development, um, and that was a very good formula for us. We did have a few uh, senior people um, who did not grow up in our system who um, came in and loved it and embraced it and flourished in it, and we had some senior people who came in um, who had a hard time with it and who ended up cycling out. So it was a mix of things, but the formula that worked well for us was kind of higher in the middle and, and, um, and grow the, grow the leadership talent ourselves. Nice. Okay. So let's talk for a moment about bolster, um, because I am interested in hearing about on-demand executives and board members. First of all, who needs such a service typically? And is this a growing trend? Yeah. So bolster, um, let me back up for a second and just, uh, describe the business. So bolster is on, is an online marketplace. So it, it functions the same way Airbnb does or Uber does. Um, right, it's got buyers and sellers in a marketplace, um, and we uh, exist to help founders and entrepreneurs and CEOs um, access talent in a better, different, faster, and cheaper way uh, at the executive level. So the marketplace helps um, principally uh, startups and scale ups and private companies. Although we have done some work for larger public companies. Um, the marketplace helps uh, companies hire executives, and that could be for what we call an on-demand role. And I'll come back and answer that question in a minute. So on-demand would be um, anything that's like a 1099, not a W-2 and sure. not an equity role. So it's a project, it's a fractional executive, it's a mentor, it's a coach, uh, it's uh, an interim executive. Um, we also uh, do connect people for full-time roles. We connect people for board of directors roles, and we connect people for networking and high-value introductions as well, where money isn't necessarily changing hands. Um, so um, the uh, you know there is a there are several trends at work that are uh, putting wind in the sails of the business. One of them is uh, that the world is moving to a more flexible work environment, right? Some of it came from COVID, right? People can work from anywhere and video is pervasive, et cetera. Um, but the, the gig economy is not new, right? The Uber is 12 years old or 13 years old or 14 years old now as a business. Um, and people have been talking about working gigs for a long time. And what's happened over the last decade is that gig work has moved upstream. So, you know, I think 20 years ago, um, and this is a little bit cartoonish, but 20 years ago, if you were a fractional executive, or if you were an executive consultant, you were either retired, looking to stay active, or you had a hard time getting a full-time job. Now, 
if you're a fractional executive, it means you have earned the right to work on your own terms. I love that. I love um, that uh, that switch that, that you just referenced. It, it's it's incredible. The, mm. the, uh, the talent that's out there that uh, wants to work, uh, wants to contribute to companies, wants to work maybe even full-time if you add it all up, um, but wants to do it piecemeal. They don't want to be tethered to one desk, to one company, to one boss, um, or to uh, uh, you know, or to one way of thinking. And um, uh, we have uh, we have tens of thousands of executives in the in the Bolster network. And I remember one of the ones that we recruited very early on, probably one of the first hundred. I was talking to her about her journey, and she was a human resources professional. She'd been a chief people officer at a bunch of companies uh, full time, and then had just decided to go uh, fractional. So she had two or three clients. And I asked her why, and she said, "Well, it all started when um, uh, it all started when I took time off between jobs, and my family and I moved to the south of France. And then I got a, a call from a headhunter um, that there was an interesting job opportunity for me. And uh, I talked to the company, and I said, "But you know, I'm really happy here in the south of France. I don't want to move back to Chicago, wherever she was from." Uh, and the company let her work from there. And she just like the light bulb went on. She's like, oh, I can live in Provence <laughs> um, and I can still be a head of HR for, for a company in Chicago and I can do it two days a week and then I can spend time in the South of France. And she just said, I'm never going to do that again. I am never going to you know, go back to the rat race again. Um, so not everyone is like that, but there is a growing trend around, yeah. um, you know, around work on your own terms. There's also a growing trend around coaching and mentoring. Uh, particularly in the startup world, uh, there's a big trend around uh, diversity in the boardroom, and all of those things are, are fueling our business because uh, we do have a very large and diverse pool of talented executives, and we make it easy for companies to access them on their own terms. Cool, I love it. It's actually interesting, Matt, because <clears throat> I was going to ask you about something you talked about a while ago when you talked about your own transition from consultants to um, to going in-house. Let's call it. And I had the opposite journey. You know, I was tethered to a building. I, you know, I was an educator. So even though I worked in multiple institutions, often concurrently, wherever I worked, that was the place, so to speak. Um, and then once I headmaster of a school, for sure, that was my entire, my entire focus, my location, everything. And then I said to myself, I want the freedom. You know, I don't want to be tethered to one building. I don't want to be answering to this one board of directors who did not always make my life so simple and pleasant and whatnot. And so I wanted the freedom and the flexibility to serve on different levels, different kinds of clients, different ways. Um, every day I'm somewhere else, that kind of feeling. And so I was curious about your almost like reverse approach where you were on the outside looking in and you had this desire to become part of something specific. Right. And then, of course, you know, things have changed for you. And now you're talking about these fractional executives and whatnot, who I guess, you know, talk about the rat race and whatnot. They've been in one place for a really long time. And now they want that freedom, whether it's in France or just from their living room, wherever they're located. So I'm just curious about how you see those kind of like opposite um, ways of thinking of things. You know, it's really different to be 21 years old and an analyst at a at a consulting firm, um, and being you know mid career or late career, and and being a, a consultant or a coach. Um, the uh, uh, you know they're they're both consulting, but they're very different jobs. Uh, the the job of the 21 year old analyst um, 
uh, you know, is to, is to work a hundred hours a week. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, you know, when you work at a consulting firm, you do have clients, but you, you really work in a job at the, at the firm. Um, so I, I think it's, uh, you know, look, careers have arcs to them. Uh, you know, they have different seasons to them. And, you know, when you're in that, that, uh, you know, sort of first five years out of college, um, you don't really have enough expertise to go out on your own and do much of do much of anything. So even if you wanted to do that, you 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 could. Um, but those are years where I found learning was the most important thing I could do. And you can't. It's hard to learn on your own. I hear it. Yeah, that is very true. And sometimes in my work, I feel like I just wish I was surrounded by a lot of really smart people right here, right now. And that is something that I miss without question. All right, my last question of this segment, I ask it of all of my guests. I actually have, um, I'm on the tail end of a journey to put a productivity book out to market. I already did an ebook and tons, tons, of, tons of other writing and whatnot, but I wanted to ask you for, um, actually, you know what? My apologies, I'm getting ahead of myself. In this segment, I wanna ask you a question about the biggest mistake you've ever made, mm. how you've overcome it. Mm. Um. Uh, so I'll give you two. I'll do, I'll do one of omission and one of commission. Love it. Uh, so I think that the biggest mistake, I, I mean, I, we're talking about business here. The biggest mistake I ever made in business was um, not selling return path when I had an opportunity to sell it uh, like in 2013. So six years before we sold it um, in hindsight, that was a big mistake. Um, we would have made much more money Um in much less time. And uh, uh, the sin of commission, <laughs> uh, and I'll come back to lessons because I think they're probably similar. Um, at, at one point along the journey at Return Path, we, uh, we took growth capital from an investor that turned out to be a real problem, like a very, very um, uh, poor choice of investor that created numerous problems uh, for us as a company, for us as a board. We ended up having to buy them out. It was very unhappy and it was a massive distraction. Uh, and, um, and the lesson I, I took away from both of those things is that the, um, you know, when you're building a business, you're doing several very different, uh, but obviously connected things in parallel. Uh, and you actually have to be good at all of them. You have to be good at building the business, right? Finding product market fit, um, having vision, dealing with your customers, dealing with the operations of the business. You also have to be good with people. Um, and uh, you have to know how to mobilize the, the army. But then you also have to be good at the corporate stuff. You have to be good at um, managing the cap table, at managing the balance sheet. Uh, and at, uh, you know, sort of thinking uh, both big picture and small picture at the same time about those things. And some of those things are hard. Market timing is, you know, is anybody's guess. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, but both in, in the mistake of not selling the company when we probably should have and taking money from a bad investor, um, you know, just, just taught me that that, that that third track, you really have to pay attention to that and get as much outside advice as you can on that track, too. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, getting the outside advice, the mentorship, those are all, all critical pieces. And I'm sorry about the, uh, but we all, we, you know, the reason I, the reason I asked this question is because when, 
when my, when my listeners, just people in general, when they see successful people, so we oftentimes think, well, they just have some special gift, you know, they were maybe on the fast track. And when we hear about mistakes, we recognize that we're all human. You know, we all have those moments where we second guess, we wonder, should have, would have, that kind of thing. And the reality is, you know, that's part of the journey. That's really part of the journey. And so let's transition over here to rapid fire. And I'm curious to know, Matt, who is a person in particular that really inspires you? I'm very inspired by my wife. Okay. Uh, my wife is, uh, like you, an executive coach. Uh, nice. She's a CEO coach. And I am truly inspired by the, uh, the sheer number of important things that she can seem to get done at the same time. Uh, cool. Whether it's um, running, running the house and raising the three kids, which I'm a participant in, but she's, she's the lead. Uh, being a CEO coach and managing her clients. Uh, or uh, serving uh, as uh, a board member and in, in lots of cases, the chairman or president of multiple nonprofit and civic boards at the same time. It's wow. absolutely remarkable. Okay. So we're going to just keep these, the rest of these nice and tight here. Sorry. The worst, the worst <laughs> advice you've ever received. Worst advice I've ever received uh, was to sell Yahoo stock in 1996 or seven. <laughs> okay. If you could put something on a billboard for everyone to see, what would it be? Find joy in something today. Love it. And finally, a productivity tip that helps you to get more done. I type 120 words a minute. So everybody should just learn to type a little faster. We spend an awful lot of time typing. Okay. So tell everyone, please, Matt, how they can find you, how they can connect with you, learn more about your work, and just get more uh, more of your wisdom and inspiration. I have a blog, which is startupceo.com. Uh, I don't post that. I post probably once a week. Okay. Uh, I am uh, very easy to find in general. Uh, email is just matt at bolster.com. And uh, I would encourage anyone that's a senior executive to take a look at Bolster. And uh, it's free to sign up. It's free to search. It's free to join. Um, and uh, it's a great community of executives. Yeah, you got. You certainly have piqued my interest. Okay, so before we let you go, please leave us, Matt, with one final life lesson. Be open to new ideas. This one you could elaborate on if you wish. <laughs> I find that... Uh, uh, that is not so common. Uh, people get um, set in their ways. People get rigid. People think about things the way they think about things. People get attached to a tribe and tribal thinking. And uh, I think uh, all of those things are, uh, are are destructive. I hear it. All right. Well, it's really been a pleasure speaking with you. And as I alluded to at the beginning of our conversation, recording this just before the Jewish New Year, so uh, wishing you a Shana Tova and to everyone listening as well. And I'm really looking forward to sharing this content with my listeners. Uh, you've given me a ton. And uh, thank you, Matt. It's really been a pleasure. Nice to talk to you, Natalie, and uh, Shana Tova to you as well. Bye-bye now. Thanks so much for listening to this episode and for investing in yourself so that you can lead to succeed. Before you go, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Your feedback gives the show more social proof and encourages more folks to listen.